This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 15th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Political participation often includes giving money to candidates you like. But when boycotts and threats of violence accompany publicity surrounding those contributions, can there be any doubt that the people who want to name and shame political donors aren't aware of the likely fallout? Walter Olson comments on the most recent case of Congressman Joaquin Castro and the political donations that he didn't like. Texas Congressman Joaquin Castro uh, distributed to the public a list of names of people uh, who were supporting uh, President Donald Trump, um, and it appeared that he was doing so in a in a way that was meant to shame them. Exactly. It, these were people who had given the maximum individual contribution to Trump's campaign. Uh, Joaquin Castro's tweet along with the list, uh, said uh, very confrontational things about how they were enabling uh, terrible things. This was right after the El Paso shooting, and listed their names along with their professions or businesses, which in a number of cases were uh, retired or in one case homemaker, but in other cases were the names of businesses in San Antonio. And along with it, uh, he said some things like, what a shame that uh, this barbecue owner uh, and that woman who sells real estate would be doing these things. So very focused on um, uh, not just shaming them, but also shaming them in a business context of don't patronize their businesses. Right. And so uh, this speaks to an issue uh, in campaign finance. And we need, we need to make clear that a lot of that information is public already. You can get that information. Exactly. He was using information that you could get if you wanted to spend a few minutes on the web. So uh, to the extent that he's highlighting this this information, it, it speaks to an issue in campaign finance, which is uh, th- there was this constant pressure. Uh, Chuck Schumer is appears to be one of the, the leaders of this push to uh, make people who are spending money in politics, not just donating to campaigns, but spending money in politics make their names public. And and he views, uh, in some ways, he views it as a good thing that people are uh, held to account in some way by the public for having done that. It's interesting, the notion of accountability, because it works in two different ways here. And not everyone saw both of them coming. The argument for these laws is often you want to keep the elected officials themselves accountable by exposing the possibility that they were getting half their donations from some special interest. And that kind of question uh, is of widespread interest. People uh, would feel that they knew more about the politician if they found that it was uh, llama farmers who had given half of their donations. Uh, but at the same time, uh, once that information is out there, it will inevitably be used to uh, perhaps privately pressure or in this case publicly pressure uh, people to hold back or hesitate from participating in the political process by supporting candidates in a perfectly legal way. There are people who advocate for laws that that have this very strict regime of disclosure for not just campaigns, but groups, uh, PACs, for example, or super PACs, or even 501c3 nonprofits like the one that is uh, producing this podcast at this very moment. Um, and uh, 
they may well believe that this is a good thing to hold people accountable, but it's hard for me to, if, if you spend any amount of time looking into this issue, it's hard for me to imagine that you cannot be aware that there will be some uh, potentially violent uh, interactions that these people have with those who are uh, virulently opposed to the kinds of speech or spending that these people would be engaged in. There is a certain strain of good government believer who takes the rationale offered for some of these laws at face value and says, oh, this is more sunlight, this is a way of keeping up uh, the, the, the spotlight on politicians. Uh, I think the events of the last, what, 15, 20 years uh, should probably have complicated the viewpoint of each of these <laughs> naive believers. Uh, and everyone remembers the California Proposition 6 episode in which the donors on the side, which uh, actually carried the day in that proposition, I disagreed with it, but it was the majority uh, uh, opinion in California in its time, the opposing gay marriage. Uh, because California required all of that to be made public, uh, People were targeted, their hotels were targeted for boycotts, and in the most famous episode, someone uh, who had donated was uh, uh, basically done out of the promotion uh, at uh, a, a major software maker. Uh, um, and the this, it left people uneasy. And as I say, it left people uneasy even if uh, substantively they were not on uh, the, the same side as, as the people were being targeted here is because, uh, for one thing, a norm is changing. Uh, not to say that this has always been the norm throughout American history, but certainly a norm that uh, prevailed over quite a bit of the last century, which is that uh, you can uh, fight enthusiastically about wh whether your party wins or loses, but that at some point when you go back to the workplace or when you go back to your community, San Antonio or Silicon Valley or whatever it is, uh, you set some of those things aside because you've got lots to cooperate about with the people you were arguing with. And not just on one side and not just on one issue, this has been fraying a great deal. The particular poll statistic that I always fall back on here is the poll of would you want your kid to grow up to marry? And um, for several of those categories, including marrying across religious lines or marrying across racial lines, America has gotten more tolerant and broad-minded. People in general are much more comfortable with the idea of their kids marrying across any of those lines. But the big exception is, would you be willing or how would you feel if your son or daughter married someone of the opposite political party? That number has plunged. Uh, back a generation or two ago, people were by and large just fine. Yes, there were some people who took politics so seriously that it would bother them. And now all of a sudden the numbers have plunged that it's become a very common, even I think a majority of you, to be upset about that. My sense is, uh, and it, this is not particularly a strongly held view, is that if one of the pushes that a lot of people are making with regard to political spending and political activity is that we've got to get big money out of politics or what, however the, the slogans go in, in, that, in that vein, uh, and that more average people ought to be getting involved in politics and have a relatively larger impact than the big moneyed interests that, that drive a lot, of, uh, a lot of political spending, um, this would seem to give lie to that if you accept as a natural consequence that there will be these 
uh, not just boycotts, but potentially violent interactions between people uh, who are strongly opposed to one political view. It's awfully hard for people to stay consistent about, on the one hand, yes, everyone should take part in the political process. What a wonderful sentiment that is, versus, wait, I didn't mean you guys who are on the wrong side of the political process. And so there is that tendency for people to forget their original recommendation. Let's all speak up and make our views known when uh, something that is said or something that is communicated uh, makes them angry because it, it's for exactly the wrong cause or the wrong candidate. So we can't have it both ways. And this is one of the functions of the old uh, play in the joints where you agreed to leave politics out of many other areas of life is that it did create a little more leeway for people to speak up for unpopular views without feeling that their life is over, whether their social life in San Antonio or perhaps their economic life, if they lost enough customers. Uh, you could have eccentricity, you could have political diversity uh, because people still wanted to buy the food in your restaurant, even if they thought that your politics was off the wall. Perhaps most notably, uh, in 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 this vein of sort of singling out uh, people who are active in politics and spending money in politics, advocating for people or ideas that they support, the Ricketts family in Chicago, which owns the Chicago Cubs, uh, was trying to prevent Donald Trump from being elected president at one point, and Donald Trump, of course, singled them out as he often does with people who are opposed to, to things that he wants. And he unleashed a tweet talking about how it, it was really outrageous, the, the tweet about how they had secrets that they wouldn't want exposed. It was so improper from so many different points of view. But notice here that the uh, there's a real difference between elected officials or people who are candidates and, and expect to be elected officials doing it, and ordinary kind of street activists doing it. Now, you might expect as things get more and more polarized and unforgiving that activists out there not connected with candidates will be trying to promote this information more and trying to promote boycotts and things. Maybe that's inevitable. Maybe that's just part of the um, change in sentiment. But there is something especially dangerous when elected officials do it because they are using their position and their central uh, uh, rallying point to uh, send the mob, as it were, even if the mob never does anything violent. Uh, this is a way in which people who already have lots of control over your life uh, can misuse more power. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>